There is a fifth dimension beyond that which is known to man. It is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition, and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. It is an area which we call the twilight zone. That's a great show. Uh, the Twilight Zone, it's a place where people enter and they have to question their view of reality. It reminds me a little bit of the time that we're living in now, uh, the COVID zone, uh, a time where we all feel a little bit disorientated. I mean, we walk around each day looking at people wearing masks, we see stores that are closed. We see parks that are empty. Um, banquet facilities that would normally house weddings are silent. Even funerals where only a few people gather to say goodbye. Um, it's a twilight zone. It can feel a little creepy because... When our perspectives of reality get challenged or become changed, things feel creepy to us. I've been thinking a lot about that. I guess I probably think about creepy things. But as I've been thinking about this whole sensation that I, I know just about everybody has at some point or another, that, that things have changed, that I'm not used to this. It made me begin to wonder, what does that mean about our interpretations of reality? I mean, if we can walk around and feel this creepy sense of change because of COVID, what should happen with our examination of reality in the light of the coming of the Christ? I mean, think about it. Jesus came into this world. He came to save it and he came to transform it. He came to change our interpretations of reality because those interpretations, well, they were weak. They were small. They were broken and they were distorted and they were keeping us separated from God. You say to yourself, where exactly are you going with this? I want us to use a few moments today. In light of this COVID situation where we're stopping and having to recalibrate, 
to even go further and recalibrate our interpretations of reality. Are our interpretations of reality real? Uh, I've heard one author one time say, reality is what it is. And that's true. It's like gravity. It is what it is. You can buck it, but gravity's going to land. Well, the same is true with reality. The issue is, what reality are we living in? Are we living in small, weak interpretations of what is real? And what impact is that having on us? Um, Because when Jesus truly comes into a life, he comes into that life to change it. He comes into that life to realign it to what is real. Because ever since the fall, we have drifted further and further and further away from reality. And we reap the consequences and yet somehow we don't get it. Somehow we don't understand that oftentimes the reason things go wrong in our lives is because we're heading in the wrong directions. Even as believers in Christ, we can get stuck in this place where we're trying to live out two realities. On one hand, we're truly trying to seek what God wants, but our minds are still focused by the way that this world lives. And so when we get stuck, we'll try to look at things through God's perspective, try to understand, and, but we'll hedge. We'll take bits and pieces that fit with what we want to see happen, with the reality that we cling to most dearly. And it doesn't work for us. In fact, we probably look sillier than even the rest of the world that doesn't believe. This morning, I want you to enter into the twilight zone with me for a moment. Because in one sense, that's what we're doing. We're entering into another dimension. We're entering into the dimension of God. And looking to reorientate ourselves to how he would have us to live. We're going to do so by looking at a very special passage. It comes from John's gospel. It's an example and a story that John recorded that speaks to this issue, that that helps us to know how to come up with a greater, a more accurate, and a more effective interpretation of reality. The story is found in the second chapter of John. In the story, we see Jesus with all of his friends and with his family. Uh, Let's look at it for a moment. We read on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Now, let me tell you a little bit about traditional Jewish weddings. Normally, a Jewish wedding if this was uh, the wedding of the first married, if this was the wedding of a virgin, it happened on a Wednesday night. Uh, 
If it was the wedding of someone who was widowed and this was their second marriage, it would usually happen on a Thursday night. And the cool thing that would happen at these Jewish weddings is first there would be a feast. And then the couple uh, would be taken up and carried and paraded back to their homes. And they would have a crown put on their head. Um, they would be taken on the longest route so that people could see them. There'd even be a canopy uh, over both of them. They were celebrated as royalty. In fact, they would be brought back to their homes and the wedding would go on for a week. There wasn't an instant honeymoon. For one week, they would be celebrated. In fact, the, the little crowns that they wore on their heads meant that they were the king and queen of the celebration. And anything they said, well, that went. Um, we see Jesus coming to a wedding that he had been invited to. Obviously, it seems like his mom had something to do with the wedding because uh, we see in the scripture that, uh, that she was there and then we're told, and Jesus and his disciples were invited. So it was probably somebody that she knew a lot closer than maybe even Jesus knew on a relationship level. Um, it's pretty cool the fact that I, I think that Jesus actually went to a wedding. And I guess it shouldn't be surprising because marriage is something that God created. God didn't create living together and God didn't create hooking up, but God created marriage. And so here we see a wedding and Jesus is there. You know, I, I gotta be honest with you, when I, when I thought about that, I started thinking, I, I wonder if Jesus danced. I mean, He's there. I'm sure he didn't just sit back kind of judgmentally uh, looking at people self-righteously and, and maybe smiling, but, but not getting overly involved because I think Jesus, when he celebrated, he celebrated. Now I have to tell you, I can't dance. I can't dance at all. In fact, wherever I go, when I do dance, people tend to laugh because I don't have any rhythm. And um, the idea of being at this wedding honestly scares me a little bit because I'm thinking, gosh, if I was dancing in front of Jesus, the man who was God and man who was perfect, who probably could have danced better than it, he would have howled just watching me dance. Jesus comes to this wedding because he wants to bless marriage. By his presence it is God representing his pleasure and even God's celebration at marriage. When I marry couples, I tell them all the time, when you go up to that altar, you're not just saying yes to one another. You're saying yes to the God of the universe. Because if you've done it in a Christian church or you have a Christian minister there, it's for the purpose of inviting God into the ceremony and making your vows to him as well as your spouse. Well, we're at this wedding and we see something go on. In verse three, we're told when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Um, now it's interesting. Jesus, uh, excuse me, Mary doesn't go and ask 
Jesus a question. She doesn't go and request from him some solution. She just goes to him and says, there's no more wine. Now, being uh, his mother, and yes, Jesus had a mother. um, People say, well, I thought he was God. Yeah, he was God. But God determined that in the sending of his son, he would experience everything we experienced. Even coming into this world, being born as a child. And so God picked this woman, Mary, and impregnated her through the Holy Spirit so that he was both God and he was man. And so she comes to her son and she presents this problem. Now this was a problem because, think about it, if you're gonna have a wedding that lasts for a week, if people are gonna celebrate yeah, they're probably going to need wine to make them a little festive. Now, I have to tell you, I don't drink. But I also have to tell you that if I had to go to a wedding for a week with some of my relatives, I probably would be drinking. Um, Now, I don't think that's the reason they drank. But for one week, there was a requirement of the bridegroom and the bride to make sure that there was enough wine to last for a week. In fact, they could be sued if it didn't last for a week because under Jewish law, you didn't invite people to come to a wedding from far places knowing that they were coming for a week and then leave them dry. And what we're seeing here is it happened on the first night Somebody miscalculated the guest list or people began to crash. We don't know, but we know this on the first night, something went wrong. And so Mary took the problem to Jesus, didn't make a request, but even Jesus being fully God grew up with a mother and he knew what his mother meant when she said, well, Jesus is no wine. She knew that he knew that she was bringing the problem to him. And so what we find next is what I call the great question. Look what we read. In verse 4, Jesus says, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. Now why is this the great question? Because when we talk about interpretations of reality, This question is one that helps us to get there. Jesus is saying to her, why do you involve me? And notice he says, my hour has not yet come. Jesus was a person who always knew where he was, what time it was, and what it was that he should be doing in his life. And from that, we draw, I think, a very important principle when it comes to living with, an ins- with a strong interpretation of reality. And that principle is, is this. Weak interpretations of reality don't ask, what does this have to do with God? 
weak interpretations of reality, don't ask, what does this have to do with God? If we're going to live in reality, if we want strong interpretations of reality, then we have to be living each day knowing that reality is determined by God. And if I want to live in reality, if I want to have a life that makes sense, if I want to live a life that doesn't waste time, then the only way to do that is to be looking at where I am and what I'm doing and what time it is and asking, what does this have to do with God? Uh, Too often, that's not where our heads are. Too often, our heads are interpreting reality through fear. Too often, we look at the world and we see what is potentially dangerous or scary or would put us in a position where we would have to risk something important. And instead of asking, what does this have to do with God? We just simply look through the eyes of fear and we respond through those eyes. Fear is an awful thing, but it can move people for sure because we'll either be moved by faith or we'll be moved by fear. You see that today in our world. You see people who are legitimately concerned about the COVID virus and legitimately concerned about not spreading it. But those same people are not living in fear. They're not walking around asking, do I have it? And if I have it, I'm going to die. They know that God's in control. They know that God numbers their days. Do you live your lives interpreting reality through fear? Uh, Others do it through money. Their interpretation of a life worth having is one in which they have plenty of money so they can feel secure, so they can do what they think will uh, bring them satisfaction and joy. Money becomes everything. It interprets to them whether they're successful and even whether God is pleased with them. The problem is money is no way to interpret life because what you'll end up with is greed. Others do it through ambition. They interpret life through the lens of ambition, through the lens of production and striving. The problem is, when they fail, when they fall down, when things don't go right, they settle for this weaker interpretation of life that says, you're not good enough. You're not there yet. You're a disappointment. Others, they interpret life through pleasure. They interpret life through lust, through sex, through pornography. They interpret life through feeling good. And that's what matters. And yet through that weak interpretation of life, in the end what they find is they eat away their souls. They ruin their marriages and their relationships. They leave a a legacy of sorrow and not of strength and integrity. 
Others go through life with this interpretation that what matters is to be validated by others. What matters is to to fit in, to be made equal with others, to be able to enter a room and not feel self-conscious. And yet, because that becomes their interpretation of reality, they always feel self-conscious. They never feel validated. They never understand that the only way they can feel valid is by a right interpretation of reality that says you play to an audience of one. That if God is happy with you, then you don't have to worry about anybody else. And through the life and death and resurrection of Christ, your debt of sin has been paid and God is happy with you if you are in Christ. Weak interpretations of reality. Interpretations that don't ask, what does this have to do with God? And it's so easy in this world. There are so many voices talking to us every single day. (laughs) Why is it important to be in the scriptures? Why is it important to be praying? Why is it important to be seeking godly counsel? Why is it important to be accountable to others to say, if you see something going on that isn't consistent, tell me. Because in doing so, We can live each day with a stronger interpretation of reality. We can live each day, no matter what happens in our surroundings, to not live like we're living in the twilight zone, but to live knowing that whatever happens around us, reality happens within us through God's spirit. Jesus gives us the great question to ask, what does this have to do with God? How does what's going on around this world have to do with me if it doesn't have to do with God? It's a powerful question. Uh, But we see a great question. We also see a great answer. Look what we read. Verse five, his mother said to the servants, do whatever He tells you. Now I love that. Think about all the implications of that answer. It's a great answer because she says reality is interpreted by him. If he decides I'm not going to do anything about this. This isn't my problem. This doesn't have to do with what I have to do with. Then she says that's the interpretation we go with. Now the wonderful and the beautiful thing is. Jesus got it. In fact, I kind of think Jesus was giving his mom a little bit of a hard time. Now, I know that doesn't, but in a comical way, because he knows what she's going to ask. He knew what she was asking. And she also knew her son well enough to say, whatever he tells you, you do it. Because he'll do the right thing. And he does the right thing. Because Jesus loves marriage. That's part of the interpretation of reality. That if God is for it, you can best believe he's going to bless it. She says, do whatever he tells you. That should be the great answer for us. To ask the great question, what does this have to do with God? 
And then to listen to the answer and to make it our answer. Because that's the best answer there is to the questions of life. Whatever God says, that's the way it should be. Will I have enough money for tomorrow? God will have to decide that. I'll work, I'll do what I'm responsible to do, but I'll trust God. Will I find the right partner to marry? Whatever God decides. Will I miss out on something in this world if I don't uh, take the initiative and push the envelope? Not if it isn't God's will. Because if it's his will, you won't miss out. But if it isn't his will, whatever you get, you'll wish you had missed out on. We see uh, the great question. We see the great answer. Look what we see next. It's what I call the great result. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn it, had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did, John tells us here in Cana of Galilee, was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. A great question that leads to a great answer that leads to a great result. When we look to God to set the agenda of our interpretation of reality, it will come to pass. Great questions like, what does this have to do with God? And great answers that we respond with by saying, whatever is God's will will bring about great results. That God will bless what we're doing when we know what it has to do with him. One of uh, the great figures of history and particularly of uh, literary history was Ernest Hemingway. Uh, Ernest Hemingway was a, a boy who grew up in Oak Park, Illinois, and he would spend his time summering in Michigan. He was a young man from a very start, was looking to experience the best of everything. Um, and in fact, throughout his life he did. He went on to become a reporter for the Kansas City Star. He was an ambulance driver in World War I. He spent a lot of time after the war just hanging out in Europe. He was involved intimately in the Spanish Civil War. He made incredible friends, friendships from Mona Lee, the bullfighter to uh, Francis, uh, excuse me, uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald. Um, and his writings, well, we, we know the impact of them, particularly his famous one, The Old Man of the Sea. And what was largely an autobiography of him, in his book, 
the sorrows of Kilimanjaro, we get a glimpse of what he thought about himself. Uh, in the story, uh, we're told of the wife of the dying hunter who says, why, you're the most complete man I ever met. Well, he was supposedly to be this great person. And this is pretty much what Hemingway thought of himself. A gentleman by the name of Carlos Baker went on to write Hemingway's biography. Listen to what he writes as he speaks about the end of Hemingway's life. As he speaks about the result of Hemingway's interpretation of reality. He writes, Sunday morning dawned bright and cloudless. Ernest awoke early as always. He put on the red emperor's robe and padded softly down the carpet stairway. The early sunlight lay in pools on the living room floor. He had noticed that the guns were locked up in the basement, but the keys, as he well knew, were on the window ledge above the kitchen sink. He tiptoed down the basement stairs and unlocked the storage room. It smelled as a dank grave. He chose a double-barrel shotgun with a tight choke. He had used it for years for pigeon shooting. He took some shells from one of the boxes in the storage room, closed and locked the door, and climbed the basement stairs again. If he saw the bright day outside, it did not deter him. He crossed the living room to the front foyer, a, a, a shrine-like entry five by seven with oak paneled walls and a floor of linoleum tile. He slipped in two shells, leaned forward, pressed the twin barrels against his forehead above the eyebrows, and tripped both triggers. A man who interpreted reality is grabbing as much gusto as you can, as experiencing as much pleasure, building up as much popularity and prosperity a man who interpreted reality by lots of alcohol and lots of women. And in the end, this man put on his red emperor's robe. And when the wine had run out, the interpretation of his reality had run out. And he took his own life. You see... The wrong interpretation of reality will leave you with no life worth living. When we have the truly real interpretation of reality, one that is strong and cemented in the truth and the spirit of God, our lives end much differently. We see it in the life of Jesus who despised the shame of the cross. In other words, he looked beyond it. It meant nothing to him for the hope of what was to come. And what was to come? 
salvation to the world, grace to all of us. Jesus came to bring us life, to bring us eternal life and abundant life. As determined by an interpretation of reality set by God. So this morning I want you to reflect on that. I want you to think about it throughout the week. I want all of us to keep asking the question, what does this have to do with God? Am I doing what is politically correct? Or am I doing what is spiritually correct before God? Am I living in fear or am I living in faith? Am I desperately trying to please someone or please a crowd? Or am I just trying to please God? What I call truth Is it what the world is telling me that is true? Or is it what God's word is telling me that is true? Look at your interpretation of reality. Ask yourself the question. Does this interpretation hold up? Or has it led me down the wrong road over and over again? Because maybe it's time to change your interpretation of reality. Let's join our hearts in prayer. Father, give us bold hearts. Help us, Father, to keep our head above the crowd. Let us look at where we are and what we're doing and what we should be doing. Help us to enter the events of the day looking at how you would have us redeem them. And not just join in with others. Lord God keep us mindful. That you have saved us. And you have set us on high as your children. And you have commissioned us and sent us out. To share the gospel of Christ. That in his name others would believe. And in that you would be supremely pleased. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the love that you have for us that never goes away. Help us to live for you in all things. That we would not be deterred or distracted. That we would not feel that creepy feeling of being outside of reality. But that Lord God wherever we are. We would know it's real because you are there. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.